Greetings, and thank you for joining me for quite excellent episode number 49. This week's poem is In the Wash by Michael Dubon, which was published last month in the online literary outlet The Rising Phoenix Review, a publication dedicated to the power of poetry to engage with social issues, especially those involving the challenges affecting working class and marginalized groups, although I didn't happen to stumble onto this myself. Once again, Reed High School's Terry DeBarger passed this one on to me. The poem was a bit more personal for him, though, because Terry had Michael as a student, and he was proud to see his former student finding success, especially success within the written word. So he was probably eager to share it, and I was pretty sure after reading it that I'd be using in the watch for our class, but then, just a couple days later, my friend and brief Coral Middle School teacher, Topher South, shared the poem with me as well. I pretty much had to use it at this point, especially since, like the victory, the relationships and expectations of family are so paramount in it. This poem isn't half so bloody as the victory, but it doesn't slouch in its honesty and intensity either. Speaking of the victory, we need to jump back into that first. I thought this poem would be interesting for students, given how it treats its subject matter. I'm guessing that few of my students, if any, had been exposed to many presentations of childbirth as anything other than the typical story. You know the one. Childbirth as magical, as a defining moment. In the TV shows, it usually takes just a few minutes from, "Uh uh-oh, we've got to go to the hospital, to, oh, isn't he precious? And childbirth can be those things. But it is hard, too. Terrifying, even. There are moments during the birth of both of my daughters where I was genuinely scared, both for my girls and for my wife. For how unspoken those moments usually go, I really appreciated Stevenson's work here. Here's the poem. Anne Stevenson, The Victory I thought you were my victory, though you cut me like a knife when I brought you out of my body into your life. Tiny antagonist, Gory, blue as a bruise, the stains of your cloud of glory bled from my veins. How can you dare, blind thing, blank insect eyes? You barb the air, you sting with bladed cries. Snail, scary knot of desires, hungry snarl. Small son, why do I have to love you? How have you won? As expected, students had quite a lot to say about how different this portrayal of birth is compared with the more traditional presentation, and that's a good place to start in their analysis. One student talks about how the poem describes the hardships of love that come with childbirth by juxtaposing that usually tender and warm moment of birth and a gory truth about it. Another agrees, saying the speakers, showing how Giving birth to a child can metaphorically suck the life out of a mother. It shows how gruesome but also maybe happy childbirth can be. And I think it's easy to look at this poem and not see the happy, but a few other students seem to agree. One said that hope is present here while giving birth to her son because it's noted that she brought him out of her body into his life. This feels, the students suggest that there's a kind of relief here knowing that her son has been delivered alive. 
And if we're relying on just the archetypes of birth and what we associate and understand about them, a student notes that this is, like many of the things we've been discussing in previous poems, a moment of vulnerability and intimacy, and that is a part of childbirth. And despite being painful, it is something that, as a result, creates a bond between those who experience it together. So maybe even though the poem doesn't spend a lot of flowery language on the relationship between the mother and the son, there's still a connection there that is important. And despite the accomplishment of giving birth and bringing life into the world, a student notes that the speaker is here vulnerable and hurting and left questioning whether or not it was actually worth it. With another student suggesting that maybe this is an example of postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is an experience that mothers can sometimes have, sometimes fairly commonly, uh, where they feel despondent, maybe they're anxious, loss of appetite, they don't feel the kind of connection to their child that they are expected to or believe they should. Uh, it is a complicated experience, and I think this may be an example of it. I think it's a really thoughtful connection to the real world and the, the complexities of birth. And that distance between the mother and the child comes through in the language that is being used, with one student noting that initially the speaker describes the child as an antagonist that bled from her veins. There's a reality to this description that there are hours here of pain and difficulty that might be influencing this mother to resent her child, to associate those pains and the cause of them with her son. And students had a lot to say about the son as well. One says that childbirth is presented negatively by the conscious avoidance of warm and inviting diction. The speaker also seems to dehumanize her child, calling it bug-like with its blank insect eyes. And of course, later we get a complete sentence in a word that just says snail, which is pretty off-putting. This choice to describe the child as a blind insect suggests to another that the speaker is disgusted by her child and feels her suffering has not really amounted to anything, or maybe at least to enough. And many students focused in on all this language. They identified it and were surprised to see these kind of descriptions applied to an infant. One says the description of her child was rather mean by commenting how his bladed cries barbed the air or how he had a hungry snarl. And these bladed cries and hungry snarl, according to a few, are connecting this child to something non-human. It is belonging to a wild animal of some sort. And when it describes the sound the sun is making, stinging with bladed cries, this implies that when the baby cries, the mother's unsure of what the baby needs. And so maybe she feels like she fails as a mother here. So it isn't just a feeling of disgust, but maybe there's also, according to a student, a feeling of failing to live up to a responsibility. Another student described these language choices as bitter saying that a bitter vocabulary shows the pain her child had brought her. Even the connotative choices here make the child seem like a baby gorgon. She still has these positive feelings. She says, small son, which is a kind of ownership of kind of warmth, maybe, but it's still having to fight through all this discomfort and gross language. Which brings us into the end of the poem, 
the questions that Stevenson resolves the poem with. The student notes that later in the poem, the speaker asks, why do I have to love you? And that this question creates a juxtaposition between the mother's initial resentment to the newfound feeling of love she has for her child. And I think this reading here has to do with what it means to have to love. Have to love could mean that the mother is personally compelled to, why do I feel this love that I have? While other students, I think, read this have to as an expectation placed on her. Why am I required by others to love you? I think both are equally valid and both change the poem in pretty significant ways. On the subject of these closing questions, the student says that the speaker asks why she has to love the baby and how the baby won. And she's asking what the baby did to deserve her love because she went through all the pain. She went through all the work. What has the baby done here? And another looks at this last question, how have you won? And says that the speaker is wondering why she had it won. Well, at the same time, the student says that it doesn't appear that the son has won either. Or maybe the mother is delivering this question as an accusation to the child that maybe seems to, in the mother's perspective, feel as though it won, as though to ask, why do you think you have won? These questions that close out the poem are an important part of establishing a tone, and that tone is part of a variety of different poetic choices that function to do really important work in the poem, as identified by my students. One says that the poem conveys a strong sense of doubt and almost regret throughout the poem, and another notes the poem describes the speaker's heartbreak by using metaphors that feel similar to her pain. That's where all those kind of disgusting descriptions, comparisons come in. Another wrote that the poem utilizes derisive olfactory imagery to address not the wonders, but the struggles a mother faces following, and of course, during childbirth. A battle can be seen as something similar to a bonding experience because one way or another people work out their differences and come together, says a different student who notes that there is a fair amount of language in here that feels violent in the same way that a war is, that a battle is. And it's not just language choices and imagery and things like that. I had one student who actually made a connection between the language of the poem and the rhyme scheme, which is phenomenal. I love when students look and find structural details that work to build meaning. And this student noted that this is an ABAB rhyme until the very last stanza. And this is a juxtaposition, a breaking of the rules of the poem that the other stanzas had already established. So we break the rules of the poem through a break in rhyme, and it also expresses this breaking of thought about how the speaker is thinking about their child. Maybe where the rest of the poem was assertive about how disgusting and terrible the sun is. Maybe this last stanza that has shifted its rhyme scheme shows a break in the mother's convictions and into her confidence that her son actually is the monster that she has so far described. And overall, these choices, according to a number of students, are working together to create and illustrate some of the thought process of someone who's struggling uh, in childbirth. And we see this, by the way, in other texts as well, where things that we associate with pleasantness, with positive emotions and experiences described in negative ways, they reveal a deep internal struggle for that person as they confront something that everyone else assumes should be pleasant. 
Now, the last poetic device that I want to talk about is the title. Titles are wildly important, and focusing on them, coming back to them after you've finished reading the poem is an important step in making sense of what that poem is doing. And given the poem itself, students had a lot to say about the fact that this is titled The Victory. Because there was so much said about the title, I'm going to go through a few things that students said pretty quickly. Uh, We have that although the poem is titled The Victory, the speaker describes it almost as a defeat. It feels that instead of having won, the author or the speaker lost in every way possible. That there's a juxtaposition between the torture and the victory of birthing a child. Stevenson uses the title as a statement for both the mother and the child. And one student actually spent more time than most on what the title was really doing here. So I want to read a little bit more from this response. The student said, Even before we start to read the contents, the title of the poem, Victory, would at first signify to the reader that this is a happy moment, and one that's worth the wait. Instead, the speaker insinuates the opposite of this from the very first sentence by saying, I thought you were my victory, in which the word thought clearly shows a past tense point of view. This is a poem that opens with a title that seems celebratory, and then its first two words manages to just just break that conception wide open, which is a pretty impressive thing to do in four words. And all of this discussion of victory makes me think of something else that's historical, and I promise there's a connection here. So there is a thing called a Pyrrhic victory. We get the name Pyrrhic victory, P-Y-R-R-H-I-C victory, from King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who defeated the Romans in a battle of Heraclea back in 280 BC. And this was a terrible battle. It was a battle that basically devastated King Pyrrhus. And despite being able to claim that they won, that they succeeded in that singular victory, it was so destructive to his armies, to his morale, to his very ability to continue to wage war, that it was really hardly a victory at all. It was, in fact, a defeat, despite being called the winner. And so a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that comes at so high a cost that there is nothing to celebrate in it, that all you can do is mourn for the toll that it took. And in my students' discussion of all the loss here and all the pain here, this poem, this childbirth, feels like a Pyrrhic victory. Now, we direct our attention to Michael Dubon's In the Wash, Like the victory, this is a poem concerned with speaking honestly about personal, intimate conflicts. In this case, those between the expectations of family and an English-dominant American culture that sometimes speaks past the individual value of others, based on who they appear to be or what they do for a living. And while Stevenson used the highly personal first-person point of view in her opening line, followed primarily thereafter by the second-person you to refer to the speaker's son, Dubon withholds that I until the final line of his poem, preferring a second person that refers to who, exactly. This could mean very little, or maybe it means everything. Despite 
the insistent second-person perspective, this poem feels quite personal, and it is easy to assume that the speaker and the poet are the same. We've talked before about how we should never assume this to be the case on the basis of a single poem, but I was fortunate to be able to talk with Michael directly. Good news, students. For the first time, we can comfortably refer to the poet as our narrative voice. Michael confirmed that this poem is about experiences and emotions he struggled with. And the internal and external issues, the pressures of family and culture and maintaining a job, those are his. The experience with the white man telling him no clean and broken English happened in his fifth year working as a housekeeper and his second year of community college, where he was, somewhat ironically, a writing tutor for other students. He said the juxtaposition of being spoken to like this while working as a college student, that man seeing only his Mexican identity and those students likely seeing a white European student, it caught his attention, because neither was really him. In reality, he was dealing with his own struggles, like anyone else, and not always in the most healthy manner, as we see in the poem. A word of warning. You may have noticed that I've used the poet's first name when referring to him. This comes from the benefit of having had some informal conversation with Michael in preparing for our podcast. You, dear students, must treat him with more formality. Should you refer to him by his first name only, you will be haunted by the ghosts of informality past. Use his full name, use his last name only, or use a title, such as the poet or the speaker instead. To ensure you do this, our secret passphrase is the poet's last name, Dubon, but it must be used by itself, and be spelt correctly, of course, for it to count. Using his name in just the tag doesn't count it. Our writing task is related to our replies this week, and it is much more a reading task, maybe, than a writing task this time. As we've discussed repeatedly, claims need to have something to prove. If they aren't making a statement about something that requires evidence, something that others might disagree with, then it isn't really a claim. What I have noticed is that students have not only been writing these summary claims, which, honestly, they happen. That's why we're working on it. Also, that other students have been replying to them with statements like, I agree that this is a poem about childbirth, or I agree this is a poem about a new mother. If you are replying to a summary, of course you agree. You would have to be an insane person to disagree with what a poem is literally about. So the writing task this week is to only reply to another student if that student has written a claim that's actually provable. If it is just a statement about what is literally true in the poem, you need to skip it. Hopefully this will result in more disagreement, because I desperately, desperately want to see responses that challenge some of our student readings. A quick note about formatting, by the way. Google Classroom is likely to change this poem a little bit, especially viewing the assignment on a small screen or in a smaller window. Consider viewing on my website or at the Rising Phoenix Review, which I'll link to, to retain the text and line formatting, such as the longer line lengths at the end and the italicized dialogue. Here's the poem, read by the poet. In the Wash by Michael Dubon Arms deep, filth-clad, toilet toil, working at the Ski Tahoe Resort. Scrubbing this mess of spiders, disposing the cast-off suppositories, the tracks of geriatric indulgence. Work where people don't know how to talk to you. 
where the other housekeepers won't trade Spanish with you because you're not Latino enough, too American, where one day you hear a voice from behind exclaim, No clean! And you turn around to a white man waving his arms, pleading, No! No clean! We don't need no clean! Where you can't speak Spanish, can't speak English, where all you can say is, Okay. Work, where you threw up on the carpet after two turkey sandwiches, so hungover, you pass out again before vacuuming them up, then see them again in the sink, the toilet too, you scrub up your mess alongside everyone else's, where your fingers fall endlessly but never pick out all the dirt. Your Guatemalan parents who got you this job Scold you for your failings, as it might mean their jobs, their names already sullied. The job helps pay your parents' rent first, then your own. They made you work, at so young an age, a childhood stained across carpets of empty suites. You blame them for wasting wasteful time, earmarked for young weekends, prove them right, smoked in the units. Eight years drain like hard water. My hands reappear from rubber gloves. I enter any room here, and I'm already gone. Students, be sure to use Dubon by itself to refer to the poet and make sure you complete the writing task as well, which is to only reply to student responses that have a proper debatable claim. If it is a summary, skip it. All our previous writing tasks are still great guidelines for strong writing, especially using a clear what and how in your claim. The others remain recommended as well, so consider including brief summaries, short or single word quotations, and maybe a semicolon. Avoid the word quote and use more than one quote in your sentences. Keep creating variety in your sentence structures and word choices. Unfortunately, a couple students did use paint a picture or suggest that something could be seen in the mind, in the last batch of responses, which nearly caused me to trip into a volcano. I survived, but just barely. Hopefully I'll be safer this coming week. This is a poem with multiple stanzas, so be sure you're using the correct type of slashes when quoting. If you quote two lines that are in the same stanza, use a single slash between them in your quotation. If you're quoting from two different lines in two different stanzas, you'll need two slashes. Although I don't really expect this to happen, all of the stanzas resolve with a period, and I don't really want you to quote multiple sentences from the poem. Remember to complete your paragraph-length response by Wednesday, April 7th, 2021, and two replies to the responses of your peers by the Friday that ends the week. Your paragraph-length response should include a tag and make a claim in the opening sentence or two. And any evidence you use should be short, embedded smoothly into your sentences, and fully explained. Be sure to read the assignment instructions for a full breakdown of the expectations. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, or would like our class to direct an eye toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 49 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, you discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. <laughs>